Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Tanya Toller, and today I'm talking to Anna McSweeney about her new book, From Granada to Berlin, The Alhambra Cupola. Welcome to the New Books Network, Anna. Thank you very much, Tanya. It's a pleasure to be here. So shall we start with a very simple question? Who is Anna McSweeney? Well... I am an art historian. I am a lecturer in art history in the Department of History of Art and Architecture at Trinity College, Dublin. Um, I'm an Islamic art historian. I did my PhD at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. Um, And I teach uh, courses in in Trinity on uh, the on Islam in Islamic art, on architecture, especially on the art and architecture of the Western Mediterranean of Al-Andalus and North Africa. Um, My research focus is really on that area as well. And that's uh, uh, so I have been working especially on the Alhambra um, and I'm interested particularly in the longer history of objects and architecture and the long history of objects and architecture from the Islamic world um, and on their intersection with museum histories as well. Um, And that's really, I suppose, one of the main focuses of my book, which I published last year. Perfect. So may I ask, how did you become interested in um, Al-Andalus in medieval Spain and in particular, perhaps, Granada? Well, that probably predates my uh, PhD. In fact, I went and lived in Granada for six months and fell in love with it, as as I think most people who visit Granada do tend to do. Um, I went there to learn Spanish. And so my interest in Granada was really peaked many years ago when I when I was there. Um, and then since then, when I was when I did my MA and then my PhD in London in Islamic art, I focused on the material culture of Al-Andalus, partly, I suppose, because I have the language, I can speak Spanish, so I have access to those sources. Um, uh, But uh, also, I was very interested in the presence of Islamic art and and the long presence of Islamic culture in Europe um, and what that means for, for Europe today. Um, and so that was something that has always interested me. So, um, yeah, that's where it comes from, I guess. My husband's also Spanish, so that helps. We get to go there quite a lot. So, yeah. Well, that's lovely. So I guess while you were in Granada, you've uh, visited Alhambra many times. 
Um, and we know Alhambra has fascinated artists and visitors for centuries, but is there anything particular that fascinates you about Alhambra? It's such a dramatic site, the Alhambra in, in Granada. You know, it's such a, it's situated high on this hill overlooking the city of Granada. And it feels like quite a separate place. And that always fascinated me how a, a palace city on the hill there can be looking down at the, at the city of Granada below. And when I lived in Granada, I lived right beneath the Alhambra looking up at it. I lived in Plata Nueva. So I think I yeah I mean it, it it piqued my interest from that stage but in a in a more scholarly sense I guess I uh, was fascinated by how the Alhambra seems to be a very it, it's a building which is really very mysterious it's a series of palaces it's like a palimpsest there's not one uh, Alhambra that we know from outside that we can kind of draw the facade of, for example. The Alhambra is a series of internally looking, almost uh, secretive buildings, um, which really only reveal themselves to you when you walk through those that series of palace structures. And even when you do that today, you're you are um, you can get lost within the series of palaces, uh, which through which you are led today as a visitor, um, and then you you find yourself in a, in a more contemporary area somewhere that was built maybe more recently, and then you find yourself back in the medieval period. So it's a very it's an endlessly fascinating site to be in. There's also so many parts of it which are. Um, which remain from the medieval period, but which are still inaccessible. And so that's always fascinating as a scholar to be able to go and as a student, you know, and, and an art historian to be able to go and and visit um, the Alhambra and really study it in some depth. I think also I fell in love when I was in the Alhambra, in Granada originally, and then more recently when I've been studying it with um, the the people who work there. The there's been there's a long history of scholarship on the building, on the site itself, and on its own um, cultural and artistic and architectural history um, by Spanish scholars, by people who um, who maintain the site itself, uh, by the guides, the tour guides there. There's a huge pride and interest in the Alhambra among the people of Granada, which I find very stimulating and, and exciting and uh, always a pleasure to uh, to go there and learn more from them. Well, um, it really um, brought my memories back about Alhambra as well, just listening to you describing it so beautifully. But maybe for some of our listeners who have never been there, who don't really know um, that much about Alhambra, um, would you be able to summarize just very briefly what is Alhambra, how it came to be, and why does it have such a significance um, in Spanish history? Yeah, of course. Um, so the Alhambra is the shorter name for Madinat Alhambra, which is the city of the red in Arabic, really from the red color, possibly of the the stone that was used to build it, or possibly the red color of the hair of the Nasrid sultans. The Nasrids were the rulers of uh, the final Muslim rulers of Al-Andalus who, who ruled from the 13th to the late 15th centuries. 
and they they were um, their kingdom was a reduced one from what had been a kind of larger Muslim kingdom of Al Andalus. Um, by the stage that by the time they came to power in the 13th century, most of what we now know as Spain had become Christian under the rulers of Castile and Aragon. Um, so the rulers of of Granada, the people who built the Alhambra, were defending a smaller kingdom than their ancestors had had ruled as but they still maintained good contacts with all their their neighbors they traded with across the mediterranean they were very international in fact um as well as with north africa with the marinids who were who were ruling north africa from fez um, the Nasrids were there. They have their capital city in Granada, but they also had the port cities, uh, so port city of Malaga, of course, and they controlled at various times the Straits of Gibraltar, that very important entrance point to the Mediterranean. Um, uh, so, you know, there, it was a, a powerful enough kingdom, although it had to pay at, at different points. Um, uh, taxes essentially in order to be able to survive to the the rulers of Castile uh, at different times. It was also a place to which many Muslims from the surrounding regions of what we call today Spain um, uh, migrated. So it was a very populous kingdom. La Granada in the 13th century, in the late 13th century, was a very busy city. Um, it was filled with people establishing new places to live, new palaces, building new infrastructure, waterways, for example, bathhouses, a sophisticated enough city, actually. And it was in this lively city with many new, a large new population of Muslims, largely Muslims. Of course, there were also, uh, there was also a Jewish population and a, and a Christian population, but largely of Muslim population, that the rulers decided to build a palace. And the palace was on this, the Sabika Hill, this hill that sticks out on a kind of escarpment right in the middle of the city of Granada at the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, the Sierra Nevada being the snowy mountains, which are the backdrop, the very dramatic backdrop to the city of Granada. And they built this palace as a series of buildings over the next 200 years. They added further buildings to these these palaces. And they built them high on this hill, partly because it's a very authoritative site. It's a site at which you can, uh, from which you can view the city of Granada down below, um, but you also have excellent views all, all of the surrounding plains. Um, but also because they could control the water source there, so they uh, built uh, acequias, which is the the term used for the canals that were channeled the water from the rivers, the surrounding rivers, directly into the Alhambra site itself. And so the Alhambra, you you can understand it as a series of palaces, but also as a, a kind of display of how to uh, control water in some way. So all the palaces uh, have water and the sound of water and the 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 reflections of water at their at their core, at the centre of these palaces. It's a very important part of understanding the buildings themselves. Um, they, they, uh, they added to these palaces over the subsequent years until in 1492, as is well known, the um, Muslim kingdom of Granada, of, of the Nasrids, ended as the, as the forces of Castile and Aragon came together. Uh, under Ferdinand and Isabella, the Catholic kings, and um, and Spain became Spain as we know it today, a Catholic, the Catholic kingdom of Spain. 
So in the subsequent years then, and and what I've been quite interested in exploring really is what happened in the following years. The Alhambra became the royal residence of the of the um, the monarchs of Spain. Mm -hmm. It became their one of their many royal residences. And it uh, it was very well known as a splendid palace, as a very beautiful, splendid palace, despite or perhaps because of its very Islamic style, its writing in Arabic all over the walls, or the the ceramics and plasterwork and woodwork that are well known today uh, that still furnished it. And so it, it, it maintained its reputation over time as this extraordinary palace, which people visited from the very earliest times and celebrated in literature, in song, in opera, for example, and in the 19th century. Um, and that kind of fame of the Alhambra really came to the fore again in the 19th century as visitors began again to um, to, to discover this site anew um, after the Napoleonic Wars um, of the early 19th century. And it became a very celebrated site in Northern European literature. So in the writings of British and German and Irish and American travellers and French as well, who, who visited the Alhambra and and romantic, romanticized its its story, its architecture, the kinds of things that happened, and and had a very kind of nostalgic view of this palace itself. Uh-huh. It wasn't until then the eighteenth, the end of the nineteenth century, it became a, a, a national monument and a site of tourism. And then, in, as we know, in the twentieth century, it became a very popular tourist site. And today, it's one of the most popular tourist sites in Spain. So. You can see it's well. It's worked very hard this site all its life to uh, uh, as a place of of pleasure, as a place of of extraordinary beauty um, and attraction. Indeed, well, fascinating. And in this scope of this very complex history of Alhambra, there is the cupola. Where was this cupola found? Where was its place? Um, when it was made, would you tell us a little bit more of the beginnings of the cupola that is um, the center of your book? Yeah, of course. So the cupola is a wooden ceiling, a wooden domed ceiling, an internal ceiling. So it's not a structural um, object. It's a. It's almost like a suspended wooden sculpture that was made from carved and painted wood, many different types of carved and painted wood. Um, and I was very interested in my book in, in discovering the kinds of wood that it was made from, the wood that was brought from North Africa, for example, including cedar um, and maple and different kinds of pine, so specific woods that were suitable for its its structure. Mm-hmm. It's was a very, this, sorry, so- go on. Was this on purpose that they wanted to select a particular type of wood? Or was the lack of wood um, around um, uh, Granada that uh, got them? No, it, it was very much on purpose. So they, they mm. actually, there were, there were some of the woods come from the, the surrounding forests of Granada and from the area, the kingdom of Granada. But then specific types of wood were brought in from other places. Like the cedar, for example, which comes from North Africa, is the type of cedar that grows there, which is a very dense wood that can be carved for particular parts of the ceilings 
and was used at this time only for particular parts of these carved ceilings. And then you have um, different woods used in these ceilings, like a, a poplar, which is a, a much lighter wood that can be used for the more uh, the, the larger pieces so it doesn't become too heavy. So it was very targeted, very planned, these ceilings. And they were made using very expensive materials. These woods were sourced and cost money in order to be able to bring them to Granada. And... Uh, 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 and then painted. So these ceilings were also painted with uh, red, black, um, a, a white as well, and a blue. So we know that they had different trait. We have different traces of paint on them. The ceiling then that I was that I wrote the book about, the bi- almost like a biography of a ceiling, is uh, came from the palace which we can call the Partal Palace. It's known as the Torre de las Damas, the Tower of the Ladies, or the Palacio del Partal, the Partal Palace. And this was one of the earliest pavilions built in this Alhambra site. You can imagine this sort of 35-acre site of the palace on the hill here. One of the earliest palaces that was built was this pavilion, and it was built to accompany some residential palaces that were already there, which have since been destroyed. Um, and this pavilion was built by Muhammad III, who reigned in the first decade of the 14th century. And what I was interested to discover was how this pavilion uh, sat above, sat within the mirror door, so a tower room of this palace itself, and was probably the place where the ruler, Muhammad III, would have held very intimate, um, private meetings and uh, and maybe t- small events. It's a very it's in a very small room, a mirror door, a lookout room, a room with fifteen windows, and this cupola crowned this room itself. So within it, you could only see the cupola from inside this little room, which is at the top of a tower of this little pavilion, um, which sits on the edge of the Alhambra site itself, looking down into the city of Granada. So you've already mentioned, you said uh, the book is a sort of biography about um, one object. It also seems to be um, a sort of a journey of this one um, object and the way the book is structured um, is in a very chronological order. Did you plan to start to write a book like that to trace it, the cupola's life um, and its journey, or that uh, transpired later on during your research? I think the idea of an object biography attracted me from the very start of when I began to study this object, and that's because I came across this cupola not in the Alhambra in Granada, but in Berlin when I was a research fellow there in the Museum of Islamic Art in Berlin, uh, in Pergamon in Berlin. I was a research fellow there from 2013 to 14, and then again in 2015. And this uh, cupola sits in the Museum of, of um, Islamic Art in Berlin. And and I have a very distinct memories of standing beneath it and listening to visitors coming in, wondering, especially Spanish visitors, who would say, ¿Pero qué hace esto aquí? What, what is this thing doing here? Why is this Alhambra ceiling here? And realizing that it, this, at that time, it wasn't fully explained how the Coppola had arrived there, its journey, its long history. Um, and it it seemed also to me so incongruous that a ceiling could have a journey. You know, we, I think we're used to thinking about 
portable objects. We're used to thinking about portability in art history, especially in medieval Islamic studies. Portability and uh, the study of the movement of objects is really quite central to how we look at the medieval Mediterranean. And yet somehow this architectural fragment, the cupola, seemed out of place, this idea that a a bit of a building could have had some, some kind of a portable journey. In fact, the more I've researched this and the more I've studied it, the more I realize anything can be portable, really. Any part of any building can be portable. We have, of course, the Mashata facade in Berlin, the entire building facade from uh, from Jordan, which which arrived in Berlin and, and is in the museum as well. And, and as we know, entire buildings have moved into museums too. So that kind of journey fascinated me. And then I also realised that what is often not spoken about in when we think about objects in museums today is what happened in between. So we talk about origins, we talk about who made these things, we talk about why they might have been made and when they were made and what they were made from. And we might then talk about how them, what, how they arrived in the museum in recent years, but that time in between is often is often ignored. Um, and even if it's a static period, even if it's, if it's a static time, so the cupola, of course, you know, spent a long time in the Alhambra. Um, it was in the Alhambra until the late nineteenth century, um, but still, things happened beneath it, which I think were very important to understanding that longer history of the Alhambra. So I think it was for me a way of not only the object biography approach was a way of talking about this object itself of really focusing the book and hanging the book around this, the long focusing on that object and not beyond it, but also a way of telling a history of the Alhambra itself, of the site of the place, which is not often told. And that's that longer story of what happens what happens after the um, after the uh, building was built? What happens in the 16th century, 17th century? What happened in this site itself? And I think that's one that's often not told. So that was why that approach really attracted me. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely a fascinating part of the book. Um, for everyone that is interested in Granada, we always really... Uh, finish when the Islamic rulership finishes, in a sense. And then, as you say, um, it seems like there's nothing in between. But uh, here we have this um, whole narrative. So we um, we stopped talking about a cupola in the Partals. So what happened um, afterwards? So what happened after 1492 when Granada uh, falls and the Christian rulership takes over? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think that idea of looking at the longer history of the Alhambra, we when we visit the Alhambra today, we are seeing it through those different layers of history and things that have happened to that building since that time. So, for example, when we visit the Alhambra today, you have a timed entry ticket to go and look at the Nasrid palaces. But those palaces that you go and look at, so the Lion's Court and the Comares Palace, the very well-known parts of the Alhambra today, are just those buildings which the 
subsequent Christian rulers, so Ferdinand and Isabella, chose as their residence. So those are the ones that have been preserved as royal palaces. But the rest of the site is filled with what were royal palaces as well, and these are 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 not so are not deemed. You know, you don't have to have that special entrance ticket to see them, and the Partal is one of these. So it's part of the wider Alhambra site, so to speak. The Partal after 1492 became part of. Um, the military zone of the Alhambra. The Ferdinand and Isabella divided the Alhambra site into their royal residence, uh, religious sites, and military sites. And people were the, different. These different zones were um, in different parts of the Alhambra itself. And the Partal building became a residence for one of the generals, and it it, it stayed as that for the next uh, hundreds of years. At one point in time, it went from being a pavilion, so a very open, luminous. Um, uh, light-filled space with water in front of it. A very important part of the Partal is the large pool of water that's right in front of it today and was there originally. And it, it was filled in and it became a residence. So the the arches, if you can imagine, of the arcade in front of it uh, were blocked up. A fireplace was built inside it. A second floor was put inside it, um, and it became a place to live for generals. For and this is the story of much of the Alhambra. In fact, it was occupied. What we see today is a very much a cleared site for music for visitors to a, a tourist venue, essentially. But right up until the nineteenth century, the Granada, the Alhambra, had its own population, hundreds of people lived in houses and in some of the old palaces of the Alhambra and looked after it and and cared for its waterways, cared, grew vegetables and fruit in its gardens until very recently selling them at the market, for example. And they called themselves hijos de la Alhambra, children of the Alhambra. They were, they were, uh, they lived right in the centre of it. And it was only much later that that site was cleared, really the beginning of the 20th century. So the Partal and its cupola, with its cupola in situ, so it's, it was in there, was uh, was a, a place of a soldier's residence, really from the 15th century to the early 19th century. Um, and it wasn't until 1812, 18, well, 18, between 1812 and 1828, that it was sold off to a private owner. So the royal family, after the after the Napoleon's troops um, uh, invaded and actually used the Alhambra as their barracks, after that point, the royal family ended up selling off much of its uh, religious and um, its uh, military land, including the Partal, and it became uh, an inn. The Partal itself and lots of different parts of the Alhambra became private houses, and so that brings us up to the nineteenth century. <laughs> Yes, a lot of um, Alhambra, in fact, was occupied by the artists who would be traveling there for inspiration, correct? Uh, the romanticized um, version of Alhambra stems also out of that uh, possibility of staying in um, Alhambra and uh, basically painting um, all the remains um, of, of the building there. Um, so who was then the artist that occupied um, Alhambra in, or 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off we're the artists yeah I, I mean, we have this there's this fabulous resource which actually the alhambra authorities have online which is their visitors book and you can look at it online it's really brilliant and you can see all the names of different artists and visitors and private individuals who from really the the 1830s began to come in their droves to visit this site and they came because it was like an orient near to home that's how they thought of it they they talked they romanticized the alhambra as an oriental palace in inverted commas uh, often on their way to further travels perhaps to cairo or to the middle east the alhambra was the first stop now the alhambra from britain from the south coast of britain it was a two-week journey at this time so it was no easy trip but it was the one of the it was part of the itinerary that um that writers like Richard Ford, who wrote the first Baedeker guide to Spain, included as part of one of the stops that a traveller, a well-travelled traveller, would would go on on their journey to the south of Spain. And we know that from the visitors' book, that many visitors from Northern Europe in particular, but from in France, from further afield, from America as well, began to travel there. And what they found sadly was a very decrepit place because since the Napoleonic uh, uh, troops, Napoleon's troops had been um, stationed in the Alhambra itself. uh, And since, and with the kind of lack of care of the monarchy over the site. So while, while local individuals tried to maintain the site of the Alhambra, it was really supposed to have been funded by the, by the Royal family who neglected it very much. They very much neglected this palace. They didn't live here anymore. They lived in Madrid, of course, and they barely visited it. Um, In fact, I found descriptions of the royal princes and princesses from Spain visiting the Alhambra and staging kind of oriental parties in the gardens, but at the same time uh, neglecting to maintain any of the waterways or any of the buildings themselves and sort of relishing in the decrepitude of the buildings. So it was a strange mix of oriental fantasy, but also ruin, which uh, which was found by artists there when they began to visit it in the 19th century. Um, and to and to draw it. So uh, artists like John Frederick Lewis, for example, lived in the Partal itself in this one place. They called it Sanchez Cottage. Um, and they lived in this site, knowing that it was one of the old Nasserid palaces and spending their time sketching the buildings and drawing it. And 
you know, maybe meeting people like Washington Irving, who had come to write his famous tales of the Alhambra um, in the building itself. People like Owen Jones, um, the uh, reformer and designer who who would go on to have such an important role in the founding of the Victorian Albert Museum, South Kensington Museum at the time, um, and who, who lived for six months in the Alhambra, not in the Partal, but uh, in the Alhambra in the 1830s. So there, it, was, it would have been a very... Um, a very fascinating and exciting place to be, I think, in the 1830s, if it weren't for the cholera, which was was horrific and killed many of these visitors who came there, uh, including, you know, for for numbers, for many years, one of uh, Jules Gorey, so Owen Jones's companion, um, uh, was killed by cholera at the time. And, you know, it was also rather a dangerous place to be, to stay, so for, for certain periods of time. Um, but the artists stayed, many of them, in the Partal itself, underneath the cupola. And this is how I found the only image that we have of this cupola, this ceiling, in place in the mirror door in uh, in the Partal. And that was a really lucky find in the Tate uh, collection in London, a sketch of this by John Frederick Lewis. And it's a sketch I include in the book, um, which I was very pleased to find because it shows this very fading, uh, fading kind of glory of the inside of this mirador itself, but with its cupola in situ, which was is the only image we have really of that before it was taken out. Fascinating. And uh, you've just said it was taken out. Do we know why was the cupola removed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you know it, it's been a kind of uh, quite a number of years years of of researching it and really trying to get to the bottom of how and why this ceiling was taken out of the palace this is the largest piece of the alhambra that exists that survives outside of the alhambra itself we know um we know that many bits of the Alhambra went missing over time. So there's there's even cartoons, uh, you know, sketches in, in, in magazines from the 19th century, which show visitors chipping away bits of the Alhambra and bringing them home. And Western museums are filled with little bits of ceramic and plaster um, that were taken by visitors who went to the Alhambra, found it in a decrepit state, presumed people didn't care, and took little parts of it home as souvenirs. Um, this is despite the fact that that local uh, authorities and local caretakers and people who lived there were protesting and asking for the place to be protected. But despite that, visitors you know engage in this kind of activity, um, and so it, it's it's not a surprise really that this piece of the building was taken away. But it didn't happen until the end of the nineteenth century, which is rather late when you think that in eighteen seventy it was declared a national monument. Mm-hmm. The pity was that the Partal was not part of that national monument at the time because it was, as I said, it had been put into private ownership. And the private owner who owned it in the late 19th century was a German banker called Arthur von Gwinner. Now, Arthur von Gwinner was went on to become the uh, one of the directors of the Deutsche Bank. He was a very uh, international, well-traveled man. He spoke many languages. He was a collector of fossils. He seems to have been a very kind person. He was an intellectual. Um, 
And but he but he was also and and he was a banker, but in his youth he fell in love with Spain and with the Alhambra, and he fell in love with it through the views of those artists who in the eighteen thirties had begun to visit. So it, you know it kind of the Alhambra goes round on itself as artists come to, went uh, to the site and began to draw it. Um, they produced visions and versions of the Alhambra that then led to its own destruction. Mm-hmm. This is what happened with Gaviner. He saw, we think, I think, when he lived in London for four years as a young man um, in the 1880s, he probably saw Owen Jones's um, version of the Alhambra, which was at the Crystal Palace when it was in Sydenham. Owen Jones built a kind of scaled version of the Alhambra court for the Great Exhibition, which was still in situ when, when Gwinner was in London. And he was then, but he then became, Gwinner then became the German consul in Madrid. And when he was there, he met a young architect who, who had come across this part of the Alhambra that was for sale, the Partal Palace. And Gwinner entered very quickly into the agreement to um, buy it with him. And they decided to buy it and renovate this palace itself. Um, and they went down to Granada and spent some months in the palace, in this, living there and renovating it. And now, unfortunately, his friend, who he bought it with, died of cholera um, in, the, in 1890. Um, and then Gwinner got married to um, uh, Anna Speyer, a woman in Berlin, and they bought a house in Berlin. And his life really moved away from Spain and his, his very busy, very important life as a banker in Berlin and an international banker began. And he he um, he disposed of the building by actually giving it back to the Spanish, giving it directly to the Spanish state. Um, he, he became involved in building the Baghdad Bahn, for example, the train from Istanbul to Baghdad. Gwinner built all the train lines down the west coast of America. So he became, he had this really kind of uh, international travelled life. But he, at the same time, had this house in Berlin into which he put this cupola. So at some point, I needed to discover in my research, he took the cupola out of the Partal brought it in boxes up by train and had it constructed by his carpenter in his house in Berlin. And my question really was, well, why would you want to do that? And how could you get away with doing that at the time? It seemed extraordinary that you could do it, you know. Um, And there were many rumours going around in Granada when I talked to people about how it happened, how it might have happened in the middle of the night, how nobody knew about it. And then, you know, Gwinner himself wrote in his memoirs how he, you know, it was kind of an afterthought. He donated the house back to Spain. And really then he thought, well, I'll keep a little souvenir. And he had the, the ceiling sent to him. But what I really discovered was something much more planned, which was that when I read the deeds of sale of the building, the Partal, the original deeds of sale. So when Gwinner bought the building himself um, uh, with his friend, it has it includes a small clause which says, I will take with me the, the Arab ceiling and replace it with a new one. And it led me to understand that Gaviner really had always in his mind that he wanted the ceiling at all times. And that really this was part of his overall plan, probably he bought his house in Berlin at more or less the same time and that he wanted this ceiling whether the house was kept or not. My hunch is that he probably wanted to take a bit more of the building but wasn't able to, that he 
he might have come to some kind of an agreement with the local authorities or at least with with the the people who he he knew at the time that he would take the ceiling and give the building to the um as part of the Alhambra monument itself to the Spanish state um but that that was his, his intention all along now then my question was well why would he go to such an effort to have a ceiling and that's when Berlin really becomes a major part of the story. And the Oriental, the fashion for Oriental rooms in Berlin um, really becomes a bigger part of the story. Right. Well, that's definitely fascinating. I, I was continuously thinking maybe he wanted the ceiling because the ceiling was the only thing that he actually could transport out of the whole building. If you can't completely move the building, there is at least something that is made out of wood that you could move. But on the other hand, someone with that much money, wealth and connections could easily also construct a new ceiling in Berlin. I'm sure that would be done in exactly the same uh, manner and fashion. So that definitely speaks uh, very much into his mind of having something transplanted from Granada to, to Berlin as a souvenir, as he said. And those deeds are, are fascinating, that this all exists. Um, I mean, not only that you've done such a fantastic job researching all this, but we, would you say, are also lucky to actually still have that much information about the cupola preserved? I mean, very much, yeah. And, and you know, certainly uh, some, you know, considerable amount of work has been done by the museum in Berlin. Jens Kruger himself, uh, himself has done a lot of work on on uh, how the object arrived in the museum, for example, and on the longer history of it. And, yeah, also I was lucky enough to speak before she died to uh, Maretti Schoenbeck, who was the granddaughter of Gewinner himself, who, who who told me of her memories of sitting beneath the cupola with Gewinner um, and and uh, looking at his fossil collection. So there were people, I was lucky to, to be there, to be in the Museum of Islamic Art in Berlin, to visit Granada and also to have those kinds of uh, connections with the family that allowed me to um, access to all this material. I think, you know, it's, it's also it's important to kind of understand the context into which Gewinner was bringing this ceiling, which was a context in which um, the Alhambra had become this very romantic oriental ideal. There were the synagogue in Berlin, for example, the Neue Synagogue in Berlin, built in 1866, in which probably um, Gewinner's wife uh, would have worshipped, was described at the time as an Alham- a mini Alhambra palace. So it was built in the Alhambresque style. Um, there were, you know, his colleague uh, Siemens, for example, in uh, the Deutsche Bank had his own oriental room. And there were people collecting at the time entire Ottoman interiors um, uh, for their palaces in Berlin, for their grand houses in Berlin, in which they would host, you know, soirees and intellectual evenings. We know Gewinner, for example, hosted a, um, a Wednesday evening he was part of a kind of Wednesday evening group where, where you know, clever people would meet up and have interesting conversation. And he would have done this beneath his Alhambra cupola. So it was it was part of a kind of new context in which the original uh, ceiling itself signified something about Gwinner's history, about his interests, about his youth and about his kind of international viewpoint and the kind of cosmopolitan world within which he wanted to fit in. Mm-hmm. But today, cupola is in 
the museum in Berlin. So how did it end up to be there? Yeah, it's another story that really took some uh, unearthing. I mean, the the museum itself bought the cupola in 1978 from the descendants of Gwinner himself. But for um, for many, for a long time and in many different ways, people have questioned how it, why it didn't end up back in the Alhambra. Why was it not be able to be bought, for example, by the Alhambra? And you know, I eventually discovered that in fact it had been offered to the Alhambra. That the ceiling itself in the nineteen seventies was um, so. So the ceiling was taken down in the nineteen thirties from the building in which it was housed uh, by the children of Gwinner. He died um, in nineteen thirty nine, and then it was taken down and it was put into boxes. It was put into their country house in Kumka outside of Berlin, and then this was occupied by Russian soldiers during the war. Um, and eventually, the the ceiling in its boxes. Thank, I mean, you know, thankfully it survived. I don't know how it survived in boxes through the war, and 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 you know was not put together until it was re- rebuilt in 1978 in the museum in Berlin. The the grandson of Gewinner uh, wanted to sell it in the 70s, and he offered it to the Alhambra. And, you know, I, I discovered the kind of uh, correspondence between the authorities of the Alhambra and the culture minister of Spain at the time um, and different figures um, who, who were interested in it, who really wanted the Alhambra to buy it. But you've got to remember Spain in the 1970s was was not in an, in this, it didn't have the kind of economic resources that, that Berlin would have had even Um and it, there was a there was a replica cupola. There still is in place, and so it was felt that that was enough, and that there was no need to buy the original back, and that they also didn't have the finances, even though it was sold for quite a cheap price at the time. So it, it was recognised as a very important object, but unfortunately, they couldn't afford to buy it, and they re- they rejected the offer. Um, and it was uh, the museum in Berlin uh, gratefully accepted the offer to buy it at a cheap price and uh, put it up. And it was the museum when it was in Dahlem. So you're talking about the museum that bought it was in West Berlin. It wasn't the East Berlin Museum of Islamic Art, which uh, is the where it is today. So it was the former West Berlin Museum. And so the Alhambra Cupola was bought as part of their kind of attempt to build an important Islamic art collection. Um, And it went on tour then. The Cupola went to the Met Museum in New York as part of the very important 1992 exhibition, Al-Andalus, which marked 500 years since the conquest of Spain um, by the Christian forces. So it's had its own journeys too. It's gone as far as New York and uh, now it's again back in Berlin, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, fascinating. It seems it's uh, never stopping to journey. Um, if uh, if Berlin lends it again to some of the exhibitions, it's uh, going to have another installment to that journey. So it's really fascinating to to think about where we started uh, with this um, whole um, story that uh, an object such as a ceiling can have that many journeys and such a rich and, in a sense, also very fortunate life. Um, Ultimately, as you said, it is made out of wood and to preserve wood for that long. Um, Are there tear and wear um, elements to it? Uh, Do you know if uh, at any point has been uh, any serious restoration done to the cupola? 
it has its it has its sections which have been restored. A little bit of it was destroyed during the war um, when the when it was in boxes in um, in outside of Berlin, and so small parts of it have been have been remade. It was been it was cleaned at a certain certain times, and so parts of it were uh, scrubbed and cleaned. So the paint is worn away largely, but it's in remarkably good condition. And I think wood has a reputation often, you know, a poor reputation for being for being a kind of cheap material but in fact it is such long lasting material it's incredible the wooden material wooden ceilings in particular that have survived um and it it really has kept its sharpness and its real beauty um i i never tired of getting up close to it and looking at this cupola in detail um yeah, it was a real, real privilege to be able to do that, actually. So it's in it's in remarkably good condition, in fact, especially having been kept inside for all that time. You know, it's been kept pretty well, in fact. And it's about to be rehung in the in the Museum of Islamic Art in Berlin, which is is reopening as its display there soon enough. Um, a whole new kind of ordering of the of its fantastic collection and one thing that we talked about when um when when that was being organized was the potential for there to be seats underneath the ceiling so that you could sit in comfort and look up at it because as we know look staring up at a ceiling is quite quite difficult it's painful on your neck and it's quite hard to do and it, and as you know it it really would be nice to be able to sit underneath that and contemplate this long history in comfort yeah. i think fabulous that yeah. uh... Uh, gives us another incentive to to visit the museum once it opens in its uh, new uh, refurbished uh, glory and uh, hopefully really be able to sit or lounge maybe on some cushions um, uh, below the this beautiful um, Alhambra uh, cupola. So um, and my name is Tanya Toller and I've been talking to Anna McSweeney about her new book From Granada to Berlin, The Alhambra Cupola and its fascinating journey. Um, from Alhambra to um, the museum in, in Berlin. So, Anna, we talked all this time about the, the ceilings. Are there more plans in your research for further ceiling uh, researches? Absolutely. I'm, I'm working with the Victorian Albert Museum at the moment on a project looking at another series of ceilings uh, from the town of Torrijos in uh, just south of Madrid. And these were ceilings that come a little bit later, but that had their own very um, exciting itinerant journeys. There are four ceilings. One of them is in the V&A today. Um, and we have an Instagram site. You can follow the project. It's a British Academy funded project called Crafting Medieval Spain. Um, and it's really continuing my rather surprising ceiling journey. I didn't think I'd, I'd, I'd go so deep into ceilings, but here I am. <laughs> I think um, I will definitely um, look up to the ceilings way more now <laughs> after talking to you about this, uh, this particular uh, cupola. And of course, we are very much looking forward to um, the further research that uh, you are doing with the um, Victoria and Albert Museum and um, hopefully to another publication on, on that uh, subject as well. Thank you very much, um, Anna, um, and thank you everyone for listening to us. Goodbye. Thank you. Join 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.